Okay, we're back. Um, <laughs> we never left. We've been here all. We never left. I know. Um, so, where are we? What are we doing? Welcome, <laughs> listener, to Gay Crasher Podcast. My name is Kenny. My pronouns are he, him. And with me... Oh, hi. Is... I'm uh, David. <laughs> and I'm also a he, him. And nice. today we're going to switch up gears a little bit. We've been talking RPGs a lot. So since we are an all-encompassing project, we try to talk about all things tabletop gaming. We're going to talk about wargaming, miniatures wargaming today. And appropriately Ooh. enough, we'll be talking about starting your wargaming journey. I love this topic because this is something that I have become immensely uh what's the word i'm looking for immensely passionate about this is something i've become immensely passionate about and it was something that i have not really been a part of for more than just a handful of years yeah so i think i have a lot of things to say about how to get into this kind of hobby and the trials and tribulations of the of the fledgling war gamer. Yeah, so I'm really interested to get into this. But first, let's do a little games played here. David, do you have anything that you want to talk about? Of course, always. I feel like at this point, I'm just being repetitive by saying Monster Hearts and Pendragon, but Monster Hearts and Pendragon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's interesting to me the response we've been getting to our Monster Hearts games. It's mm been amongst the most popular series we've ever done on our podcast. People really seem to be vibing with it, which is pretty cool. It's the positive side of putting your games out to the public is that you can, you know, that that validation and feedback from folks Mm -hmm. who are like, hey, you're you're doing a great job. So pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty cool. And it's Definitely got me on something of a Powered by the Apocalypse kick. Yeah. Gone back and forth with that system in terms of engagement with it. It's got me looking at other games again, like Night Witches, for example, which I think our crew would do really well with. Yeah. Yeah. There's a somebody in our Discord, I think, mentioned a PB&J, mm-hmm. Powered by the Apocalypse game called Fellowship. That was like a Lord of the Rings type game. Yes. And I am trying very hard not to go get it. Yes, indeed. Same. I've got it open in a tab and I'll probably be picking it up at some point soon. Yeah, in the, what do you want to call it? The reading and research arena. Still looking, still reading through Mage. Still reading through Mythos. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> my eternal projects. <laughs> And I think maybe it's been from looking at Mythos that I've been thinking about like old school D&D again. And I've been mm. watching these reviews on YouTube of like old modules, Temple of Elemental Evil and uh, mm. Against the Cult of the Reptile God and these kinds of things. And I yep. watched a review for this module called Vecna Lives, which for folks who are watching the new Stranger Things, apparently Vecna's the baddie of the season this time around. So <laughs> yeah. got a little bit more cachet these days. And so that's a high level module where Vecna comes back to the world of Greyhawk and your 15th level characters have to defeat him or whatever. And in old school AD&D, 15th level means you've been playing these characters for probably three to five years, by the way. And there are instant death encounters in that module so i can't even imagine <laughs> oh my god <laughs> Whereas, yeah like vecna can just kill you instantly with no save and uh, <laughs> but what <laughs> what got my wheels turning was at the end when the they were wrapping up the overview and they said at the end of the module there's one one part is like what happens if the pcs win and then the other was what happens if they lose and if they lose then vecna basically comes back and the world of Greyhawk, it's really dark because it's got this demigod lich ruling over large portions of Mm-mm. it. And that got me thinking about this game called Against the Dark Master. Have you heard of this one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it just occurred to me like, wow, that would be a really cool campaign. This is just one of those ones you put it on your pile of ideas and then nothing ever happens with it. But I'm throwing it out there for anybody who <laughs> wants to run with it because basically it's a fantasy RPG 
as the name implies, there's no specific setting to the game, but the theme is that you are in a world where, say, like Sauron won the War of the Ring, that kind of thing, where there's right. this big, bad, evil guy who is ruling over all or most of the world, and you are the underground resistance trying to fight against mm. him. And uh, so it just occurred to me, like, Relatable. yeah, yeah, right, yeah, it's, it's a game for our times. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, so it just occurred to me, like, wow, that would be a really cool setup for an Against the Dark Master campaign is just take all the Greyhawk material that's out there, use Greyhawk, but run it with Dark Master in a post-Vecna reality, you know? Man, I'd play in it. Hell yeah. I'd run it. Absolutely. I love that game just aesthetically because it's all old school, like, layout where it's just black and white line art throughout the whole book. Yes. Really good black and white line art, like, really Mm -hmm. heavy contrast dark and light contrast yeah that's one of those games where it's i'll probably never play it but damn i admire it from afar i salute it yeah yeah how about yourself what's going on your end a lost momentum with the one ring due to outside forces so i'll get back to it if you will dark forces yeah exactly i've i rolled too many eye of sauron runes and <laughs> the world has fallen apart good I'll cool. that's your fault it. that's your fault okay that's my fault that's my fault i apologize right. my bad <laughs> but i did when i took a little break from it it's probably been about a week i did go into foundry and i upgraded my foundry module quite a bit so i have all these new fancy graphics and macros and all kinds of stuff that are going to make my gameplay way smoother and way more engaging for the audience, I think, which I'm really looking forward to. So yeah, basically that's it when it comes to that kind of thing. I did get a game of Warhammer in recently, which I was, yeah, very excited about because it's been forever since I've played Mm -hmm. and I got my Beasts of Chaos on the table, which I was very excited about. Yeah, I haven't played them in probably close to a year, it seems like, but their new rules are very tantalizing because they just rip through damn near everything. They'd still die in droves. But it's like a it's like a weed whacker. They just run up and kill a thing and then probably explode on impact. So, yeah. And I got to play against Skaven, which is one of my favorite armies to play against because they're high risk, high reward kind of army. So mm-hmm. they oh, are also. Are yeah. yeah, they're also dying on impact, but it's because their warp stone lightning cannon is like exploding while they're like mowing through your troops. So they're a blast to play through. And we actually started with the. We started doing the campaign. What is it? Oh, it's the Thondia campaign, which I've talked about at great length on my stream, which is basically just like a narrative matched play fusion of five games that talk about basically take your armies through this progression of finding interesting relics and keeping them and infiltrating your opponent's territory and stuff like that. And it was just a ton of fun. It was just a ton of fun. And it Got me so excited for more war games. I'm I, I love war gaming, and we spend all this time cultivating our war games with beautifully painted models and expertly crafted bases, yeah. <laughs> and all these things. It's great to just see them on the table, even even if they're beautiful and expert only to you, or if you're not happy with them at all, like I am most of the time, and you're just gonna reprime right over them. Oh my god. <laughs> Jesus. It's fun to see him on the table. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, what's funny to me is the title of this episode is going to be like beginning your wargaming journey. So presumably somebody will have Googled this and brought it up, you know, and they're listening to it. And this is something I'm going to talk about because it's like jargon, right? You know, it's like Beast of Chaos, Skaven, narrative, matched play, all this stuff. We'll put a pin in that. But I think that's a really good way of demonstrating like an inherent barrier that gets baked into wargaming, right? Is to even just talk about it in the most basic way, you're having to throw around a bunch of terms that somebody who's not into it doesn't even know. Like when you say Beast of Chaos versus Skaven, I immediately can picture that. But for someone who doesn't know what that is, it's basically it's Minotaur goat men against mutated rat men. Which is freaking cool. But you wouldn't know (laughs) that. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and we got to be careful there because I will go on tangents about all these factions and how cool they are and the things that I think are interesting about them. But 
we're gonna put a pin in that and yes, then we because we have we have another call from beyond all <laughs> what are we from called? beyond yes it's called from beyond we gotta put some reverb on that yeah we do <laughs> It's yeah, all from beyond, yeah. Okay, so this is another call from Desiree. I'm sure you can, I'm sure you know it's me. Calling from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I have questions concerning the whole humans playing humans only episode because that was like, gave me a lot of food for thought. So I took many notes and I have some thoughts to share and questions to add to the situation. The first one being, most importantly, actually, out of all of it is, please tell me that Mythos March is a joke because uh, Palladium was a thing on the EOR for a good chunk of 2020. And I'm really hoping we don't have to relive um, the exploration of a system that is obviously meant to be extinct. Okay. So, um, wow, that just took up my whole minute. So let me move on to my questions. So to answer question number what number point five, Mythos March is not a joke. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. It is a joke. <laughs> okay. Well, All right, it's a joke. What we'll probably do, if I can actually finish reading through Mythos, which is an if, that is an if. Right. But what I'll probably do is run like a one shot that will go out as a patron only thing for <laughs> both EOR and Gatecrasher patrons. I love it. Uh, yeah. And maybe we'll do a patron only system spotlight or something like that. Like we're not going to make a big uh, thing of it. The no. Palladium becoming a thing in 2020 was just the manifestation of my insanity that was induced by the pandemic. So that was my coping mechanism. <laughs> was just to travel back in time to when things were bright and shiny in the 90s. In retrospect, now I, I can see that was just my coping mechanism that was put on display for the whole world to see. So anyway. I had a huge, I had a huge good time <laughs> playing Palladium. And I still think it was about outrageous. the Gutenberg sessions. And I do want to return to that world. It just, it won't be with the Palladium fantasy system. Yeah. But I do I think we have to wrap up that narrative for both Gutenberg and Maneater at the very least. You know? yeah. yeah. Love Goof. Old Goof. Okay. <laughs> so let's, that's, shout out to old Goof. Okay. So that was the mythos really. I think that's question point five. So let's get to question one now here. Okay, so on to my next questions regarding the playing humans only. So why have other ancestries if we're not elves, dwarves, etc. in real life? Why play, you know, why play a different culture that you're not from if you're also, you know, if you're playing a human? Why do that? That's not who you are in real life, so why should you be playing that? So why not play an elf or dwarf since you're not that in real life? Like, I hope that makes sense. I'll have more questions. Don't worry. I'm sure you probably have thoughts on that. But my thought is we're not saying that you shouldn't play a culture, or at least I'm not saying that you shouldn't play a culture that you're not a part of. What I think the point, and I may not have gotten it across very well in the episode, but I think the point of saying that it's okay to not play a dwarf or an elf and rather be a human, uh, because... It is more easily empathetic to be a human Mm. because the struggles of a human, the lifestyle of a human, even if it's in some fantasy world, you're able to identify these things as opposed to being an elf or a dwarf who lives hundreds of years. You're not seeing the flow of time in the same manner. You're not seeing the important, the agency that a human sees because they know you know as a human if you get if you get too old you're gonna die and there's a sweet spot of adventuring that a human can get to between the ages of probably like 16 and 35 if you're in some kind of like medieval world and so for me it's i'm not saying don't play an elf or dwarf because that's not a culture you're a part of i'm saying don't i'm saying play a human because you are more easily empathetic toward that lifestyle. I, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Does that I, make sense? Yeah, totally. It's one less cognitive barrier that you have to overcome, basically. There you go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you can 
get into this character's mindset more easily if you're not also having to think, wait a minute, what would it be like if I'm uh, 120 years old at the beginning right. of my adventuring career? I've, I've already lived almost two full human lifetimes and I'm just starting out in the world. What does that even mean? What does that imply? Right. Or yes. there's people who are just like, I'm an elf and they don't even think about it. And then it's like, what's the point? <laughs> what is the point of playing an elf? Which was, that's where I was coming from, was like most people, when they play an elf or a dwarf or what have you, just project human cultural stereotypes onto these non-human right. groups anyway. So it's like, if you just, like I said, if you want to play some broad pastiche of a Scotsman, play a Scotsman. <laughs> right. Don't play a dwarf with a Scottish accent. I don't know. It's, there's something about that bothers me. And it's... I'm the same way. I'm the yeah. same way, dude. Because it's like what you said. What's the point? If you can be hot and also a human. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you I mean, want you, pointed there ears. Are, there are elfin humans as we speak. Like, it's yes. an adjective that you would apply to something. Like, oh, they're very elfin. There are yeah. androgynously beautiful humans as we speak. You are playing one in yes. our Monster Hearts game currently. You know, like... Right. <laughs> right, you know. And even then, you're, yeah. you're playing around with these ideas because you're playing a vampire who's been a vampire for decades now. So you're examining what does that mean to be a decades old vampire who's also a high school student. And it's something that we're like, what, 10 episodes into this campaign and you're still trying to suss out because yes. it's a huge question. And it's basically the core of your character's identity, whereas, which is great because that's the intention. That's, that's very intentional. But most people in a typical RPG situation, it's an afterthought. Right. And it's like, if you're going to play an elf, make that the core of your experience. What is it like right. to be this centuries-old elf? And I think you nailed it in our episode when you talked about how it's basically just people wanting to cosplay. And I totally get that. People are like, oh, yeah, I want to be a super hot tiefling because I want to have horns coming out of my head and <laughs> goat legs and a tail. That's totally cool. Yeah, go for it. But, yeah. All right, All right. Next, next one. Okay, so a legitimate question is how do you avoid cultural appropriation when riffing on a human culture? When you're talking about different human cultures, these are real cultures based in real, the real world. So you're saying take these cultures and use them in a fantasy setting. I could see that getting really messy very quickly. So how do you do that in a respectful way that makes sense and that is being respectful of the culture, but also playing a different, you know, a different type of human in whatever fantasy world you're playing in? That's an excellent follow-up question, I think, to what we were just talking about, because that's the other side, right? And my my immediate response is, I think that's actually an argument in favor of playing a Scottish dwarf. Because at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, my dwarf speaks with a Scottish accent and he wears plaid and whatever. He likes a fried Twinkies or whatever, right? But... <laughs> <laughs> but it's just a dwarf, man. Like, if you're getting a little, like, overly stereotypical of it, you can always right. fall back on that. I'm not saying, I'm not defending that. I'm just saying I think that's where people are coming from in that kind of an attitude where it's like, mm -hmm. I'm not literally playing a Scottish guy, so I don't have to worry about the nuances of what Scottish people are actually like. I can be kind of cartoonish with this and not worry about it, you know? Which right. yes. does lead to problems. That is an issue. She's absolutely right. Like, it, it yeah. does get sticky really fast. I think about, like, J.K. Rowling's portrayal of goblins in Harry oh Potter. Oh, my God. You did it. Right. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> I did it. I was stereo stereotypically, like, yeah, you know, no, like, cartoonish. Absolutely. Like, matching That's... Nazi propaganda, basically. Like, in terms yes. of how they're depicted. So, yeah. 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 Which, Terrible interestingly enough was something that went under the radar of a lot of people for a long time because it's oh they're going and right, then, i know right. there were some people even back in the day who were like this is a problem but it wasn't really more widely discussed until more recently when people started to take a more critical look at the harry potter canon yeah yeah and just being able to take those the scottish dwarf i think that's a, little, a more tasteful example that we can go with but the yeah just i don't know i see cultural appropriation as like adopting these what we consider like cultural tropes would be a way to say it and portray them in a way that does not do them any kind of justice to the people 
You know what I'm saying? It's something yeah. that's unacknowledged or inappropriate to yes. the culture that you're supposed to be representing. Right. Bad faith players is really what it comes down to. And if I guess if you're if your players are approaching it in that kind of way, maybe have a talk with them. But and I think yeah. that's another reason why people would go for non-human ancestries in their games is because maybe the that ancestry isn't based on any human culture it's its own thing somebody's developed you know very like unique take on elves and elves are in this game world pretty distinct from any known human culture and so therefore since it's all invented anyway you don't really have to worry about stuff like that it's the same deal as why most fantasy settings have their own made-up religions like in pendragon it's you are encouraged to play Christian knight. And if some people have problems with that for very understandable reasons, because even though we're talking about medieval Christianity, which is quite different from especially modern American Christianity, there's still these Mm -hmm. uncomfortable associations for people who may not want to engage with that. Whereas if it's just my character is a cleric of St. Cuthbert or Mialiki or whatever, like I, I love that I'm choosing right. names that are actually from real Pantheon. But, um, <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. I think of a made up name, Helm. No, is there Helm real? I, I don't remember anymore. Anyway, so, yeah, my, my character is a cleric of Helm. And it's like, okay, like that's completely made up. Now, it has no associations with actual uh, gods, you know, even like neo-pagan shit, you know, like it's just, it's just its own made up thing. And therefore, A, we can say whatever we want about the Church of Helm and B, there aren't any negative associations with it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Next question. Okay. So another topic that came up where you were asking, where are hybrids coming from? Like, why are people playing hybrid, like human elf or human orc or whatever? I think this is more, um, this is more of a symptom of of the current sort of cultural anxiety where people want to feel special. Like there's two things going on. One is there's like a lack of grounding in their own particular culture, like who they are. So I think it comes out through gameplay, maybe. Another thing I would say that we can thank Disney for making these like really super special snowflake antagonists. Antagonists? Protagonists? <laughs> They're antagonistic to me. No, um, pro- protagonists, uh, main characters who are just, they're so special and unique. Oh my gosh, they can do this amazing thing. And there's a story about them. So I feel like that is probably the Disneyfication of of characters, creating characters and playing them. Fair enough. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I guess the only thing I would say to that is I don't necessarily mind player characters being unique special snowflakes because that's what they're supposed to be. What bothers right. me is when everyone in the game world is a tiefling or whatever, like some yes. kind of weird mix. It's like if you want to play the tiefling, knock yourself out, you know, but way it's like, cooler. yeah, it's way cooler, but I don't know. It's just, it just seems like folks want these days to have a lot of that kind of stuff everywhere. And that kind of just dilutes the impact of these special snowflake characters, which is weird. Right. I, I think it's a, this might, I don't know. I guess we'll see how this sounds. But I think it's like this weird conflation. I don't know if the, even that's the right word. Between a unique player character choice and a need and desire for a lot of diversity in your game world. Because if you are playing the tiefling, you might run into uncomfortable situations where you're dealing with things like racism. Mm-hmm. fear people being afraid of your character because of who they are and what they look like i think a lot of people don't want that and but they want to play the tiefling so the answer is to pad out your tiefling with a ton of other tieflings and then you've lost your special snowflake stuff so it's a weird i don't think i don't think D has figured out a cool way to do it at least not for me of like uh, unless you just don't address it. Oh, yeah, tieflings, we read about you sometimes in your book, but I never thought I'd see one. Very cool. And then you just keep going on. Like, it does uh, make for an easy target. Like Azim and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Right. It's right. like the medieval Englishmen aren't racist. They're just, whoa, it's somebody from Africa. Holy crap. Like, right. interesting. Like, that's neat. Like, they, right. They're just yeah. nonplussed. <laughs> they're just, oh, I never thought I'd see one in, in real life. Oh, okay. Welcome. Hello. Like, you can definitely play it that way. But I do think, like, people use these kind of mixed ancestry characters as well as just 
non-human ancestry characters as a stand-in for exploring issues of diversity and multiculturalism which is yeah that's probably yeah yeah Yeah, definitely all right next question this may be our last one but i don't know yeah yeah let's see okay so this is another one other thing i think that um I'm just finding that in fantasy role-playing, which is probably why I don't play it, I think it's just very much, at least the, the D&D kind of versions of these things, they're very much tied to these American values of like manifest destiny, rags to riches sort of thing. Uh, it's a narrative, an arc, if you will. And that doesn't interest me. I, I don't find that interesting. I don't find it to be... Um, worth playing or perpetuating in the games that I run or want to play in. So I just feel like these sorts of like you start off at zero and you end up like amassing all of this wealth or whatever, quote XP. I just feel like it perpetuates those weird like kind of American values that have gotten us into a lot of trouble. So (laughs) you can choose to share this one or not. I don't care. I do completely agree with it. And in fact, I think the mass, the massing of wealth, specifically in Dungeons and Dragons, has been a problem since people stopped counting things like encumbrance. If you look at old D&D, you went and you found the treasure chest, but then you had to get the treasure back. You had to get it back to your stronghold or back to civilization from the wilderness. Yes. Now, nobody really cares about that. Nobody does that kind of thing. And so what ends up happening is these players start spiraling into this mass of wealth and what happens is is you have to start introducing interesting things like your weapon breaks your armor deteriorates your stronghold needs upkeep or players just are like oh i actually have a hundred thousand gold right now i'll just uh, disrupt this local economy and give this guy five grand uh, while, you know, him, there's a hundred dirt farmers. And as soon as we leave, they're all going to kill him and probably distribute the wealth evenly. You You're hope? Welcome. I don't know. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. Uh, You're welcome. I feel but like yeah. this is, I feel like this is a good one for a mini-sode on uh, colonialist uh, and capitalist themes in fantasy role-playing that we could maybe record for our Patreon. Oh, I love there. that idea. Yeah. That's a big one. That's a big one. It is. We don't want to go too far off on this tangent, but I'll just say I agree as well. And it's a critique of D&D in in particular that's been around for a while. It does reference another, I think, upcoming episode that we're probably going to do, which is like, what is medieval fantasy? Because D&D is often categorized as medieval fantasy, when in fact, it has a lot more in common with, I would say, Old West tropes of land clearance and wealth acquisition in, in the quote-unquote wilderness. But you're absolutely right. In in original D&D, you did get experience points for gold recovered, but you, had, you, you didn't get those XP until you got back to your home base and banked your wealth, basically, which is just like so... Ah... Uh. Can't get into it right now. So. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's. Would you rather have XP for getting for completing the mission and coming oh, yeah. back with a bunch of wealth, or killing a bunch of sentient creatures? <laughs> I, that's the fascinating thing is that in fact in old D anD D the bulk of your XP was coming from gold, and in fact fighting something for XP was a sucker's bet because you're getting like ten percent of the pot. Like you're fighting this troll who's worth, I don't know, 300 XP, but he's guarding a horde of 3,000 gold pieces, which is worth 3,000 experience points. So much better, instead of risking life and limb, fighting the troll, much better to outsmart the troll and just grab the gold and get the hell out. So the game was actually, in that way, rewarding smart play, but it just proves that people like to bash things. And because like groups would just be like, oh, it's a troll, let's fight it. And so the game has evolved in concert with the expectations of the audience, what the audience wants. And so nowadays it's, it is primarily XP from killing things, which is a whole other topic, perhaps. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> about that in our inevitable how to pick a game based on what it rewards you to do yeah. <laughs> episode. <laughs> in our inevitable anarcho-communist analysis of D&D episode. In, in, oh. Anyway, but yeah, we've got a couple, few more messages from Des, but I think we'll save those for the next ep so that we can move yes. on 
we can get out of the realm of the beyond and move on into yeah talk so <laughs> yeah All right, getting into wargaming you know what we are going to do with our next episode is we're going to tell you about some systems that you can utilize mm. to get into wargaming i think for yeah. this episode we're just going to talk generally about how to get into wargaming what is wargaming what are some of the barriers you're going to encounter as you try to get into it and how to make that easier for yourself yes so how do we get started on that i know i say that all the time but i am always being genuine (laughs) (laughs) you're like no it's an actual question it's not rhetorical (laughs) yes this is not rhetorical i literally want to know no how do we get how do we get started in okay so you're a baby war gamer you're taking your first breath what does that look like? <laughs> <laughs> well, so like I said, I think right up top, we need to talk about what is miniatures wargaming, right? So, because, mm. you know, maybe you've heard us talk about Warhammer, you've heard us talk about miniatures or whatever, but you don't really know what the hell that is. So essentially it's using scale model figures and there's different scales of figure <laughs> depending on aesthetics really what you like a larger scale means you're going to have fewer models on the table but they'll be more detailed a smaller scale means you'll get that masked battle effect each individual figure is very abstract really so it's a scale model figure that you or figures that you deploy onto a three-dimensional board (laughs) i mean this is general as possible right but it's a three-dimensional board that you have constructed out of what they call terrain So this can be things like little scale model forests, hills, buildings, walls, rivers, lakes, whatever. You're basically creating a custom scenic board. And this can be very simple. You can use like books for hills and terry cloths to represent rivers when you're first starting out. But anyway, you want something to represent this terrain. You're basically creating a scale layout. And then you are putting your scale figures on this thing. And then there are rules that tell you how to move these guys around on your table and how they fight each other and, you know, how to determine who wins. It is a war game at the end of the day. Some some games are co-op where all the players are on one side, they're playing against an AI that's responding to their actions, but much more common for it to be a competitive game head-to-head against one or more opponents where you're trying to determine an ultimate victor. And I just want to say, as a historical footnote, this was all invented by H.G. Wells, which just makes it even cooler yes, because yeah. he really liked tin soldiers and was like, I wonder if there's a way to make a game out of this. <laughs> you know. And so <laughs> if you Google H.G. Wells Little Wars, there's great photos of these Edwardian gentlemen crawling around on the floor of their parlor, moving tin soldiers <laughs> around, <laughs> which is just hilarious. But H.G. Yeah. Wells actually was a pacifist. And one of my favorite quotes of his when he was explaining why he liked miniatures wargaming is that he said, lead soldiers leave behind no lead widows or lead orphans. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Another good idea for a gay crasher shirt. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is a huge topic. There are a whole podcast dedicated to just this subject. Uh, or even just specific gaming. rules of this subject. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And we'll have plenty of episodes about different rules systems and how we're laying them out and oh. our experiences with them and all this kind of thing. Okay. So we're taking, we now have a broad overview, an overhead view, our thousand foot view, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. of what wargaming is setting up a bunch of stuff on your table to represent things like mountains, hills, trees, and rocks. And uh, you've got your little soldiers painted up or not, and you push them around the table and you use different rule sets to interact with your opponent's miniatures. And eventually you play out a little battle. And at the end, you have some kind of story, perhaps. And and you have determined some kind of victor, some kind of victory condition for you or your opponent. So... This can take a lot of different forms. This can take historical forms, stuff like we've we've talked before, I think we've at least mentioned Napoleonics. That's miniatures wargaming in the time of Napoleon, which is like a huge, a gigantic 
subject again. Yeah, it was uh, like the OG version. Yes, yeah. We've also talked a little bit about, I know I've mentioned my six millimeter collection, or <laughs> you and I both, you have English six millimeters. I have Jacobite six millimeters. Right, um, I also have I've Samurai. Got, Right, so the samurai. We've seen two millimeters of the. There's two millimeter Napoleonics. There's two millimeters of the ancient times with the Romans. And um, just to clarify, really quick, when we say six millimeter, that means the height of the figure, basically. Yes. In, in essence. Thank you. So yeah, it's a way to express the scale. Oftentimes, you'll see. You'll also see like the scale ratio. So it might say one two eighty fifth, which means like one inch equals two hundred eighty five inches or whatever, or right. one fifty sixth or one forty eighth. Those are more like modelers scales. So like in wargaming, it tends to more be expressed as the height of the figure. The mm-hmm. kind of standard scale is we're talking around Games Workshop right now, but Games Workshop right. is the company that makes the most popular vintage war games, Age of Sigmar and Warhammer 40,000. Their scale tends to be around 32 millimeters. Right. And I would typically say if you're getting into wargaming, you're going to come across mostly 28 to 25 millimeter. Yeah. Usually heroic 25 and, you know, we get into a lot of jargon. Heroic is like big hands, big faces. So you can easier to paint 28 millimeter. You, sometimes you have true scale, which means they're a lot more realistic, a little harder to paint. The details are smaller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, this is a big subject. I think we're, so let's take a step back. Yeah. We've discussed just, a little we're bit about talking about how to get into it. It's, right. And I think ultimately it's like what appeals to you is the question. Yeah. So like when yes. I was a fledgling gamer myself, I would go to my local game store and they had cabinets with miniatures on display and I would see different and and they were they had the fantasy ones but they also had historical. So I it gave me an idea of what I liked aesthetically in terms of setting and scale. Nowadays of course you have the internet, although that can be overwhelming in itself. So I'm curious, Kenny, because I got into historical wargaming back in the analog days when you had to experience this stuff hands-on. How did you get into it? Because you were an RPG player for a long time before you got into wargaming. Yes. I ran role-playing games for something like 20 years before I actually started playing wargames, even though I was a big fan when I was running Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and all that stuff of the tactical battle map. I was looking for fun models that I could use for during my role playing game sessions, specifically for D&D. So I actually went and picked up a box of Chaos Warriors for Age of Sigmar. So these are the models that have been around forever. But they're exactly what they sound like. These dudes, they look like giant, crazy armored Vikings with like fur cloaks and big axes and swords and horned helmets. Like they're the ultimate badasses. When you think about like a generic uh, fantasy like army, this is kind of what you imagine as the Chaos Warrior. Or at least that's what I imagine coming from Frazetta and big fantasy artists like that. So I grabbed a box of those and I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I enjoyed painting them. And as I kept going, I did, I, I, at the time I was not, Age of Sigmar 1 had just come out. It was like four pages of rules. People were not really happy with them. They were still lamenting the fall of the old world, which is Games Workshop's previous game, Warhammer Fantasy Battles. They blew that up and out of that came Age of Sigmar. Yeah, we'll (laughs) talk about that later in our Age of Sigmar episode, I'm sure. Yes. And I didn't really have any desire to get into Warhammer because I knew everybody hated the rules. <laughs> and there was constant <laughs> arguments over, you know, what armies are good, what armies are bad, all this thing. And I, I never liked any of that kind of thing. So I avoided it for a long time. And eventually I got into Frostgrave, which is a skirmish game. So when we say skirmish, that's somewhere between four models to maybe something like 50. A low number of models, somewhere Less than 100, I would say. Yeah, total um, between the two. Yeah. yeah, yes. And that's, so for me, coming out of that, it was like, 
All right, I'm going to play Frostgrave. It was a lot of fun. It's a very cool game where everybody had access to the same stuff. So you weren't really worried about who's good, who's bad. It was really just about getting on the board, getting some treasure, and getting out. You didn't have to clear your opponent's table or anything like that. You didn't have to kill all their models. And at the end, there was this really satisfying progression of what models live. Did they gain experience? You randomly generated the treasure that you picked up. So it could have been... It could have been a magic tome that gives your wizard a new spell. It could have been some new weapons or new armor or something like that. So it was very narrative, which I'm still a huge fan of. Yeah, it's like borderline RPG almost. So it makes sense that that's, it was like a half step between RPGs and wargaming. That makes sense. Yeah, there's this, yeah, there's this huge, I think with, and we, when we say narrative, we're talking about a war game that produces some kind of story. Some kind of narrative that blames your army, that talks about the trials and tribulations of your forces. Bob the Barbarian got his arm cut off last session. The wizard got killed, and so the apprentice had to step up. You get this, like, overarching story of what's going on with your army. I think that actually leads into the obstacles part portion of this discussion, right? Because the trap with miniatures wargaming. There there are traps with getting into RPGs and there are traps with getting into miniatures wargaming. The trap with an RPG is it's only as good as the group that you're in. So if you have a shitty GM and a shitty group, you're not going to have a good time, unfortunately. The trap with miniatures wargaming, that's less of a concern because they tend to be more competitive. You can operate by the rules of good sportsmanship. Right. So you don't even have to necessarily know or like the person you're playing against as long as you're both capable of playing a, you know, uh, being good sportsmen and and playing a good game. Ideally, you're playing it with friends because that does make it more fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the main trap is, especially if you're trying to get into it on your own, is so let's say you've seen some miniatures that look really cool to you and you want to pick those up. That is only the beginning. And like, for instance, I have a friend who I was showing some of the Age of Sigmar dragon models to. She really likes dragons. And she was like, wow, that's really cool. Like, I could tell it was like piquing her interest. She's not a miniatures wargamer by any means, but it was piquing her interest. Right now, if she were to like do a dragon army, a Stormcast dragon army, and show up to a game with a bunch of people she doesn't know, she might get like booed out of the out of the venue because... (laughs) Because there's this reputation of people who are playing those lists as being like these sort of petty min-maxing assholes, basically. Do I have that right? (laughs) Right. Is that a fair? Yeah. Yeah. The dragon spam list, they never never do too well at tournaments, but during casual play, they could be hugely oppressive. However, they just got reined in with a recent FAQ, which is very nice. In fact, they're not so overtly toxic now that I'm like, maybe I should grab some more dragons because I've only got (laughs) one or two. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's great news. But at the same time, it's, yeah, it's, you're like kicking over a rock, right? You're like, you don't really know what you're getting into until you're into it. So it's, especially with Games Workshop games. So I would say that to me is the biggest obstacle to getting into wargaming is that the most popular games on the market right now are also the hardest to fairly get into because yeah. first of all, there's the meta, which is basically just... Mm-hmm. The word that's used to refer to the overall state of the game at the at any given moment right. like which armies are doing really well which armies suck right now are you an asshole for playing this army uh you know who's got the most interesting narrative going on at the moment and so on and so forth and that changes so that you can start out with an army that really sucks but like maybe the next time there's a rules update oh suddenly everyone's gonna hate you so you went from being like Everyone's like taking pity on you to suddenly you're an asshole. And then, which, which I've got thoughts on that, but then okay. for another episode. Sure. And then the other piece of it, what I said earlier, is the jargon, right? Because Games Workshop wants to copyright everything. So yes. it's not an elf army. It's a Sylvaneth army. It's not a Beastman army. It's Beasts of Chaos. It's not a Ratman army. It's Skaven. You know, and then, and then that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's the lore which is a fun part of the game for sure but there's a lot of it you know and then there's just yeah talking about match play narrative play open play 
blah, 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 blah. What does that all mean? It can get very overwhelming. And unfortunately, Games Workshop does not do a lot in terms of community outreach because they want you to go to their store. They want you to go into a Warhammer store where their employee can talk to you about it and then sell you one stuff. So trying to do your own research on it can be overwhelming if you're just trying to figure it out online, basically. Yeah. And there's a lot of like, and you know, there's like a lot of ton of battle reports and stuff like that on YouTube, Mm -hmm. which are people, if you're coming from a role-playing game aspect, it's like an actual play, people just playing the game and recording it and putting it on YouTube. Unfortunately, most of them are super dull and several hours long. And you're just like, I don't even know what the hell is happening here. And they assume the jargon already. They assume you're familiar with everything. And so they're like, all right, now I'm going to do my divine strike role. Okay. I need to six up. And then they just, they rattle off these terms and mechanics. And you're just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and I think that's a huge obstacle. And that, that kind of leads us into barriers to entry. So barriers to entry, it's tough to, take that first step at least it is for me like i getting into it today i'd be like oh man you really just have to find if i were to recommend it to anybody i would say find a friend who is also interested or could be persuaded to playing this kind of thing go and get like a two-player box split the cost with them and learn all this stuff together because it is much easier when you have a community of people who are also getting into it at the same time that was a huge thing that i was really lucky with when i started getting into warhammer was at the time there was a lot of people in my local area that were just starting to get the ball rolling with specifically with age of sigmar because it had really at the time started to become a fleshed out rules system the story was getting developed the lore, which is something we've talked about, was getting fleshed out a little bit. It was easier to pick up and grasp as this grand story that you can play battles and the stakes and what these factions want and you can make your own stories. Yeah, finding somebody, finding a community, even if it's just one other person, is going to be a huge... That's me and you a lot of times with things like our six millimeter historical stuff or sharp practice, uh, you know, our American War for Independence stuff that we like to play, all this kind of thing. It's fun to just have somebody else that's got a passion and a drive and is interested. And maybe you bounce off of it. Maybe they do. Maybe you both do. And luckily, there's enough of a secondhand market out there that it's easy to get rid of models that you don't want anymore. That's how I got into it. Um, it was me and my friend Alex, and we were just, initially it was Fantasy Warriors, which I've talked about before. That was just me. But then, like, once Alex expressed an interest in miniatures wargaming, then it was like, and and that that is the great thing, actually, about wargaming, is that unlike an RPG, where ideally you want at least maybe three plus people, you got to get a group together. With wargaming, it's you really just need one friend who's into it, and then you're good. It's nice to have a pool yeah. of opponents, but... Uh, it's really, ultimately, you just need the one. And, um, or, you know, you can even collect two, especially if you're not, if you're doing like a skirmish scale game where you're only buying 15 to 30 figures per side, you could, you could collect a couple different factions. And then if you've got some friends who are interested, but not really into the whole, like, I don't really feel like painting up an army or whatever. Uh, right. you know, it's just like, well, come on over. I've got some, I got some figures we can throw on the table and well, let's just have some fun with it. Yeah. And I think that in terms of barriers to entry, that is the other big one, of course, is this is a hobby that assumes you're going to be doing all the prep work as well. It's not a plug and play hobby per se. There are some pre-painted miniatures games, although their day came and went about 15 years ago. <laughs> but <laughs> turns out people like painting miniatures. It's, that's the interesting mm-hmm. thing is people actually like that part of the hobby. And it is very rewarding, but there's a learning curve in terms of painting miniatures. Well, that is something that there's a lot of good resources for online on YouTube. Yes. Painting tutorials, really just a ton. Find, find a person who's doing tutorials that you really like and watch some of their stuff. And they'll, and there's plenty of painting for beginners, like tons of them. Oh, like millions. Really get you millions. <laughs> millions, I know, really. So, you know, but yeah, you do have to paint these miniatures, ideally. You can start out pay, playing unpainted, but the point of the whole exercise is you want something that looks cool on the table. So you need to paint the it's miniatures the eventually. It's the spectacle. You're gonna, you're gonna either buy or make your terrain 
So there's an arts and crafts aspect to the hobby as well. So the joke, of course, is, oh, I've started collecting such and such army. I'm looking forward to playing you in two years. (laughs) I've even had experiences of collecting an army. And by the time I'm done painting it, the game that I collected the army for either isn't being supported anymore or has moved on to a new edition. It's changed the way that army works. So yeah. And, and that happen. is one of the classic, uh, the classic blunders, right? And, it, and that is one another reason for getting involved with the community, because this really is a hobby in the true sense of the word, I think, where it's like you are building models, you're scraping off little mold lines and cleaning the model up a little bit if it has some extra flash or whatever. You're assembling the models sometimes, you're painting the model, you're putting a bunch of fake grass and stuff on the base. And then you're putting them down and finally you're able to play the model. But if you're involved with the community, whether that's your local community or something that you get involved with online on like Twitter or Reddit or Facebook group or Discord or whatever it is, then you really get an idea of what's coming out down the line. Do I pick up this army now or do I wait in a few months because I know they've got a new like faction book that's coming out and it's going to have a bunch of updated rules and stuff like that. So yeah, I totally agree. It's, it is a pretty supportive hobby. I have to say like, I mean, yeah, these assholes, Mm -hmm. of course, but especially outside of the like competitive game, because there's a whole sort of tournament scene, especially with Warhammer stuff. But as long as you're not like, trying to get into that and even then obviously there's people in there who will support you and encourage right you yeah but especially if you're into this sort of more casual play as they say you can find discord servers you can find online communities on like you said on social media elsewhere where you're just like hey what's good what's cool what's i'm thinking of getting into blah like beast of chaos looks really cool people will be like no 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 you know up until Um, you might want to wait on that. Yeah, it's that is something the internet really changed about miniatures wargaming. Because, like, yeah, for myself, my my history of getting into miniatures wargaming is just a litany of trauma because it was like constantly <laughs> trying to figure shit out myself with absolutely right. no guidance, especially in the historical miniatures realm, which in the '90s was ins- like just yeah. horrible, like. Even to this day, it's pretty, it's harder to get into. The reason why Games Workshop is so popular is that you can just be like, what should I get? And somebody's here's a starter box. Just take this. Right. Go with it. But like with historicals, it, it really is still very much has one foot in like old school wargaming where it's you're buying metal miniatures. They're pewter these days. They're not in lead anymore. But you're buying these <laughs> right. metal miniatures from a variety. Of, you have to research which manufacturers are making the models that you look best to you who has the best range for the army and the period that you're modeling then you have to find the right rule set that works for you and we'll go into this next episode in terms of that yeah there's a lot to research with historicals and doing that without the internet back in the 90s was a nightmare because the other thing is in terms of community historical miniatures tend to skew a bit like more the sort of grumpy old hobbyist direction yeah where just meh stay out of my hobby and it's you know <laughs> and they just assume you already know everything there is to know about this period and the rules and everything else and i don't have to tell you and so you actually you do yes no you do but i will say and again we'll get into this next episode but there are better options nowadays for getting into historicals because there are companies that are actually making starter boxes that you can buy yes. thank the lord for that so (laughs) and i'll say this too is that when it comes to getting into historicals or which is a recent endeavor for me it is a monumental task kind of even though there are more options now than there have ever been as far as like doing your research and getting everything as right as you want it to be as you need it to be internally but it is also a ton of fun it's a it's just a lot of it's just really cool and you find yourself Uh, researching things that you never really thought you might have before. Like I never thought when I was, when I went over to your house to play with your sharp practice models and that cause you know, you had a bunch of stuff and we got to push it around the table. I never thought I would be learning so much about the American war for independence. And it turns out public school is full of a lot of propaganda and you start to understand. (laughs) Really? You don't say. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny how much you learn when you're getting in a historical war game and you're like, oh, weird. I never knew that this was a thing. And you start to understand more about, for me, our country's history 
And uh, apart from, oh, neat. What, who were the Queen's Rangers? Uh, you mean not all of the British forces wore red coats? No, like the Queen's Rangers wear green. Why? And who were they? And who led them? And what did they do? And all that. And, and then down to what color were their epaulets? And did they have brass buttons or silver buttons? <laughs> yes, the rabbit holes you end up going down when you're doing historical. Yeah. Is pretty remarkable. But, but yeah. yeah. And, but it's a lot of fun. And then for me, because I hyper fixate on things, I like to be like, oh, what? I'm sitting here building and painting a bunch of American War for Independence stuff. I'm going to put on a podcast or I'm going to find a TV show that's from the same period. And as I was building and painting my Queen's Rangers, I found the show Turn on, at the time, Netflix. And the main antagonists of the show were the Queen's Rangers. And I was like, there's my guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that was just like a lot of fun for me. And yeah, I really love that show. And it's cool. Now I have this visual idea in my head whenever the Queen's Rangers hit the field that I'm like, oh, I know exactly what they're doing. And I know exactly about John Graves Simcoe and Robert Rogers. And I know the future of the Queen's Rangers, which is like what our modern Rangers are based on. The, the U.S. military still uses tactics that Robert Rogers created during the French and Indian War. Yeah. Uh, so it's really yeah. cool to just know that stuff. <laughs> it is cool. And and we, jo- we joke about what's the lore of Queen's Rangers or whatever. <laughs> but that's like the, that term lore, you'll see it bandied around a lot. And that is the other side of the hobby. And it's something that I think actually has a fairly low barrier of entry. And it's something you can mm. start getting into right away, even before you've bought your first model, where regardless of what is interesting to you, will you want to play Age of Sigmar? You want to play Warhammer 40,000? You want to play Civil War, Napoleonics, whatever? you can start googling around because like these the non-historical war games they all have like multiple wiki networks that people have written up so you're like like you've just been on a journey over the last year or so getting into warhammer 40,000 where you started out not knowing anything about that setting and you started reading up on it and you saw something that looked interesting you're like oh space wolves that looks cool let me learn about the space wolves and then you started to read up on them and then that led it to learning about their deep lore and all this kind of stuff. And then you start to get an idea of what really appeals to you. So the lore can guide you in a particular direction of what you want to collect, as well as give you ideas of the games you want to play. That's, I think, maybe just to wrap it up, I think that's the final thing you have to figure out is like, how do you want to play these games? And it's, there's, we've already mentioned a little bit, there's competitive gaming, there's tournament-based games versus like narrative-based games where you're mostly just playing with friends and either you're just playing one-off games where it's just two armies bashing against each other until somebody wins, or there's games that are set up to facilitate, like Frostgrave, that are set up to facilitate more narrative outcomes. And then there's this kind of large, very large middle section where it's like you can play the game competitively but also have a story element built in where like our middle earth strategy battle games like where technically each game is a one-off but we're also creating a narrative based on our battle companies like where we have we're going to develop like the characters in these battle companies what they're doing what their motivations are and then the games will then inform that emerging narrative which is how you know that's our bias i mean that's like we're sitting here going obviously that's how you want to play but there are people (laughs) who (laughs) there are people for whom it's like no, I want to play competitively. I really like this idea of trying to build the most competitive list I can and then pit it against the best players in my in my region or go to a yeah. regional or a national competition. Yeah. And Warhammer games are great for that, but there are there are even historical tournament-based games. The Black Powder is one we'll talk about mm-hmm. next episode. But there are games that are set up even for historicals that are you know, like list-based, as they say, and that you can take to an open tournament and pit against some rando and see how well you do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's, I'm every kind of war gamer. I love Mm -hmm. the narratives. I love going to tournaments and trying my best and seeing what happens. That stuff is really fun. And I encourage people to dip their toes in 
in all of it and do all of it if you have the time. So, all right. So I think that's, is that it for getting part one of getting started in your That's at least part one. And what I would love is to hear from listeners who, you know, want more information on a specific thing. That that was just a very general survey. Again, next episode, we'll talk about some actual systems. But if there's something we're not seeing that we kind of overlooked or like you tried to get into wargaming once five years ago and you bounced off of it hard, go on our Discord or our Patreon, leave a comment, call in on Anchor, whatever, and we'll happily talk more about this. So yeah, we'll call this part one for now. And then I think based on listener feedback or if we just think, oh, why the hell didn't we touch on this? Then we'll come back. (laughs) This is only the beginning. In the words of Douglas MacArthur, we shall return. Ooh, for part two of uh, what? What's part two called? (laughs) Um, the games you can play. (laughs) Games you can play. Part two. Games you can play. That's right. (laughs) How's that? How general is that? I know. That's what we should have just called the podcast. Games you can play. <laughs> Want play games podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, thank you guys for listening. Obviously, check us out on Twitter, YouTube. Join the Discord. Check out the Patreon. Do it. Help us help you. We're here. We're here for you guys, for everybody. We're here for everyone to, because the more people who get into this kind of thing, the more players we have. And who knows? Gate Crasher Con coming up. <laughs> uh, now you're talking. <laughs> One day. One One day. day. Anyways. All right. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week with part two.